Well, prior to coming to CBU, I had the opportunity to work in corporate America for many years. And as part of that opportunity, I got the opportunity to interview people as I was hiring them for jobs. And I've gotten to take that knowledge from interviews and pass it on to my students to help them be prepared. And one of my favorite interview questions to ask is, how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with conflict? Because every organization, every team is going to have conflict. And despite what Susan said, most people don't like it. And so they have to figure out, well, how are you going to deal with the fact that there are going to be times where you have to have difficult conversations, where you're going to have to have heart-to-heart -heart confronting individuals in the corporate world. Well, if that's true in corporate America, it's even more true for us as Christians. We know that as we stand with Christ, there is going to be times where we are going to have to confront sin in this world. That there, we are going to have to stand with God in opposition to the things of man. And yet, if we do not learn how to do that well, if we do not learn how to honor God in our confrontation, we risk that instead of glorifying him as we stand with him, instead of giving him praise and honor, that we disparage his name. And thankfully, in our passage today, Moses gives us a great example of how to confront sin and opposition in a way that honors God. So if you haven't already, turn with me to our passage today, Exodus 7. And I joked with my husband that I was just going to come up here and read the entire passage, and that would fill my time. But I'm not going to do that, but we are going to take it by chunks. So um, I know you've already read and prepared, but start with me at the very beginning of our passage, Exodus 7. Verse 1 says this, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I have commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hands against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke. To Pharaoh. What we see here as we're getting into this beginning of the confrontation between Moses and Aaron, we see a summation of what Moses and Aaron were going to do. They were going to do everything just as Yahweh commanded them. And ladies, in our confrontation, we need to, point one, commit to complete obedience. Commit to complete obedience. They did everything that God asked of them. They didn't add to it. They didn't subtract from it. Everything that God told them to do, they did. And our familiarity with this story may cause us, I fear, to not really consider everything that Moses was up against. See, we know the end of the story. We know that the Israelites are going to leave Egypt. But think about it. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. Moses was, Moses was 80 years old. He was probably pretty tired at this point. He had spent 40 years in the desert, 40 years of Egypt. He was probably like, hey, can I just stop now? And God said, I have another assignment for you. 
He was supposed to be killed as a baby. He shouldn't have even been alive. He was a fugitive, someone who was wanted for murder, and he was going up against the most powerful person in the known world. He did not consider himself an eloquent speaker, and his people were enslaved, which meant as he had this confrontation, he was risking his life and his family's life. And yet, he was committed to doing everything just as Yahweh had commanded him. As Heather reminded us a few weeks ago, he said yes to God once, and that led to a thousand other yeses. And every single time, everything that God asked him to do, Moses was willing to do it. And if you look carefully at our verse, we can see that there, God is clear that there is a distinction that is going to be made between his people and the people in Egypt. He repeatedly says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and that, verse 2, he will let the people of Israel go out of his land, meaning Pharaoh's land. And then he says in verse 7, he says, I will bring my people, the children of Israel, into, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. He's making it clear there are his people, his children of Israel, and there are Pharaoh and the Egyptians. There's a clear distinction between these groups. There are those who are going to stand with God and those who are going to oppose God. And sisters, if we are going to stand with Christ, there is also going to be a clear distinction between us and the world. When we commit to complete obedience, to do everything just as God has told us to do, there is going to be a clear separation between our lives and the lives of those who stand in an opposition to God. Now Moses, when he committed to complete obedience, he had an advantage over us. He had a burning bush tell him exactly what he was going to do. God spoke to him out of a burning bush, made it very clear that this was the word of God, and he knew exactly what he was supposed to do. Ladies, I, I do not expect that any of us will encounter a burning bush on our way home. At least one that is not consumed. We might encounter a burning bush, it's fire season. But not one that is burning and does not consume. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to know what it is that we are supposed to do? If we're to commit to complete obedience, we better know what it is that God has called us to do. And we can look to the rest of Scripture and we can pull out a few key components to say, what is it that we need to do if we feel that God's calling us to confront someone? How do we make sure that we obey him in everything, in every aspect of that confrontation? The first thing that we need to do is we need to pray. James 1.5 makes it clear. If you ask for wisdom, God will provide it. So before we rush in headlong, before we say, okay, I'm going to just do this, we need to pray. We need to ask God for his wisdom on how we should engage in that difficult conversation, on how we should confront sin and opposition to him. The second thing that we need to do is we need to make sure we align our actions with God's word. That we align our actions with God's word. When there's confrontation, when there is conflict, it is easy to get caught up in everything that's going on and to argue for our rights and what we think is right. But we need to say, what does God tell us that we should do? You probably know that 1 Peter was a book that was written to a church that was undergoing persecution, a church that was 
feeling the intensity of opposition. And 1 Peter gives us a few key things about what we need to do, how we need to live our lives when we're engaged in a similar situation. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Do you know what's missing in a lot of our confrontation, ladies? is sober-mindedness, a clear perspective. Someone who doesn't rush in and argue, but who steps back and says, how can I honor God through my words? How can I make sure that in this confrontation, God gets the glory? That verse, 1 Peter 1.13, continues on. It says, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. Don't lead with your emotions, but instead prepare your mind for action, having your hope set on Christ. If we want to commit to complete obedience and we want to align our actions with God's words, may we be sober-minded in our confrontation. May we prepare our mind for action with our hope, our eyes, firmly on our Savior. Another thing that 1 Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.15, it says that we need to be holy in all our conduct holy in all our conduct. Again, remember, this was written to a church that was being unjustly persecuted. This was written to a people who were standing intense opposition to God every day of their lives. And they're commanded to be holy in everything that they do, to make sure that as they stand for God and oppose the things of man, that their life is reflecting the character of their Savior. 1 Peter 3.14 also tells us that we need not to fear. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if as you stand for God you suffer, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them. Have no fear of those who are standing in opposition to God. Because as Pastor Mike is fond of saying, what is the worst they can do to you? The worst, the very worst thing that those who oppose God can do to you is to kill you. That's the worst thing. And you know what happens? If you're a, if you're a child of God and they kill you, you get to go be with your Savior. That's the worst the world can throw at you. So as we stand for God and we oppose the things of man, we need to not fear because God will provide. God will deliver us in one way or the another. God will deliver us. Like Moses, God may call us to difficult assignments. He may call us to challenging confrontations. And when he does, we need to make sure that we say yes over and over again, that we commit to completely obey him in all of those interactions. And ladies, you know, as you've done your homework, this path of obedience that Moses had before him, it wasn't an easy one. Look with me to Exodus 7, verse 8, where we see the first encounter between Moses and Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Exodus 7, verse 8 says this, Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves, by working a miracle, then you, Moses, shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh's and servants, and it became a serpent. Yay! Yay, it worked! But there's more. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same. Imagine that you're Moses and you're Aaron, and you're like, okay, we're going to go show how powerful God is. We're going to take this staff, and we're going to make it a serpent, because God is at work through us. And then the Egyptian magicians come in, and they do the same. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, it didn't matter. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. So Moses and Aaron go. They're obeying God. They're going to do what God has called them to do. They take the staff. They cast it down. It becomes a serpent. But then the Egyptian magicians seem to do the same thing. And Pharaoh says, eh, that's not impressive. That's not really that big a deal. Your people aren't going anywhere. So Moses and Aaron committed complete obedience. They go back because Yahweh told them to. Exodus 7, starting in verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile Nile died and the Nile stink so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. You got to be thinking at this point, if you're Moses and Aaron, okay, this is really impressive. But no, verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh even turned. He was so resistant, he turned and went into his house And even though his people had to drink, had to dig for water, it says, he did not take, verse 22, he did not take even this to heart. Okay, all right, God, we did the serpent thing, we did the blood thing, what's next? Yahweh had a plan. Exodus 8, starting in verse 1. It says, then the Lord said, Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And then skip down to verse 15. After Pharaoh has asked Moses and Aaron for assistance, he says, verse 15 says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Moses and Aaron are committed to complete obedience. They do what God has called them to do, but time and time again, they're met with opposition. They're met with a hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and yet they kept showing up. They kept doing what God called them to do. In a similar way, we need to point to, we need to make sure that we aren't, that we don't be derailed by resistance. We need to make sure that we are not derailed by resistance. Moses and Aaron weren't. Pharaoh resisted them, and yet they kept 
coming back because God had told them to do so. And you have to remember, it looked, it had to have looked to the Egyptians, to the people of Israel who were skeptical about Moses, it had to look like the Egyptian magicians were just as powerful. Everything up to this point that Moses and Aaron are doing, the magicians seem to replicate it. And we don't know, the Bible doesn't make it clear exactly how they were able to do that. We don't know if it was sleight of hand, it was like an illusion, right? Kind of like pulling the bunny out of the hat, right? We don't know if that was it or if there was some type of demonic activity going on that allowed them to seemingly do these things, these supernatural things. But time and time again, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to show them how powerful God is. And time and time again, it looks like the Egyptians are able to match him tit for tat. And yet, they keep coming back. They keep doing what God has called them. And yet, the fact that the magicians seemed to replicate what they were doing gave Pharaoh an excuse to harden his heart, to continue in his resistance against God. I don't know the reason that people in your life, the people you encounter, I don't know the excuses that they may use to resist God. They may say, well, all the Christians I know are hypocrites, so why would I turn to God? They may say, you know, I don't believe anything except what is naturally explained. If science can't explain it, I don't believe it. Or they may say, you know what, you say there's a good God, but there's a lot of evil in the world, so how do you explain it? Or they may have a thousand and one other excuses. I don't know what it is that they're going to say that's going to cause them to harden their hearts and to resist God. But ladies, let's make sure we are not derailed by that resistance. Let's make sure that we continue to do what God has called us to do, that we continue to stand with Christ. There's a few ways that we might be derailed. We might be derailed by fear and worry. We might say like, ah, God, this doesn't seem to be working. I, I imagine that could have been a temptation for Moses and Aaron. We might be derailed by anger. Can't you understand this? How do you not see this? And we let our anger drive our confrontation rather than the word of God. We could be derailed just by frustration and the temptation to give up, to say, oh, they're just not going to get it. But Moses and Aaron knew that this was a confrontation that God had called them to. And if God has called us in a situation to stand with him in opposition to the things of this world, we can't let any of those things tempt us from continuing to do the work that he has given us. For those of you who like lists, I have three ways for how do we make sure we aren't going to be derailed. How do we be sure that we don't give in to these temptations? The first one is we need to keep trusting God. Keep trusting God. We saw it in our passage, Exodus 7.10, Exodus 7.20, 
They kept doing as Yahweh commanded. God gave Aaron and Moses a glimpse of what he was going to do. He didn't tell them the whole game plan. He knew that there, they knew there was going to be opposition, and they knew that God was eventually going to provide deliverance. And they kept trusting him. And we know that because their actions proved it, because they kept doing what God commanded. I don't know about you, but when I hear the stories of the plagues, I tend to think that they happen like one right after the other, right? Serpent, one day. Blood, next day. Frogs, next day. Nuts, next day. That's how I tend to think of it. But people who are smarter than I am tell me that those plagues, that, that period of time could have taken up to nine months. Nine months of opposition. Nine months of your neighbors looking at you side-eyed. Nine months of people muttering under their breath. Nine months. And yet, they kept doing just as Yahweh commanded. There's no indication in our passage that Moses ever grumbled about this, that he ever complained, that he ever grew weary and just wanted to give up. And we know that Exodus does not shy away from telling us when Moses messed up. And yes, in this encounter, he kept trusting God because he wasn't going to be derailed by the hardening, by the resistance of Pharaoh. Another way that we can make sure that we aren't derailed by resistance is number two, or letter B, however you want to put it, is to keep blessing others. Keep blessing others. Now, you may be thinking, Natalie, I did my homework. I read the passage. I don't see the word bless anywhere in it. And you're right. But look with me, maybe with new eyes, to Exodus 8, verse 9. I'm sorry, Exodus 8, verse 8. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, we've had the staff turn into the serpent, we've had the water turn into blood, and now we have the frogs. And Exodus 8, verse 8, the Egyptians are tired of the frogs. And so Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me, when am I to plead for you and for your, for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile? And he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Verse 12, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered together in heaps, and the, Lord, and the land stank. Did you catch what happened here? I don't know about you, but I think I, I was blessed. I grew up in church. I've heard the story of the plagues many, many times. And I think when I heard this in the past, I thought Moses was kind of being a little snarky with Pharaoh. Like, haha, I can show you how powerful my God is. You tell me when you want them to disappear, and I'm going to make that happen. That's not the position of, Pharaoh, of Moses in this passage. Listen to this again. 
be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you. You tell me, Pharaoh. You are the ruler. You are the person that has authority here. I am Moses, and I am going to act in deference to that authority. I am going to honor you as the ruler of this land. And then it says that in verse 12 that Moses cried to the Lord. This was a desperate pleading. This was praying with anguish on Pharaoh's behalf. Why? It tells us, because it says in verse 10, Moses wanted Pharaoh to know that there is no one like Yahweh. He wanted Pharaoh to know that God was God and that he needed to conform his life to his standards. He wanted Pharaoh to recognize that he wasn't the supreme ruler, that God was. He cared about Pharaoh, this man who was opposing him, this man who had enslaved his people. He prayed for him. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48 tells us very explicitly, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And that's what, Pharaoh, that's what Moses did for Pharaoh. He prayed for the one who was his enemy. Moses is not the only person throughout church history who had to confront a reigning ruler who stood in opposition to God. You may know that last week there was an anniversary of sorts in church history. On October 6th, several hundred years ago, William Tyndale was put to death. If you don't know the name William Tyndale, he is the man who is largely responsible for the fact that we have the Bible in English. Because he was a man who said every person, every individual should be able to have the Bible in their own language. They shouldn't have to trust the interpretation of those. They should be able, like good Bereans, to go and look in their Bible and understand and compare with what the church authorities were saying if that's what the Bible taught. And so he started the process of translating the Bible into English. But the church authorities in England at the time did not like that, and neither did the governing authorities, who was the head of the church, and so, William Tyndale had to escape England and go to Germany because they had condemned him to death. So he went to Germany, and while he was there, he finished translating the Pentateuch. He finished the New Testament, finished the Pentateuch, but they caught him before he could finish translating the rest of the Old Testament. And the authority in England, the king of England, was so mad that William Tyndale would dare to translate the Bible against his edict that he condemned him to death by strangulation and by burning at the stake. And William Tyndale, as he stood in England with the chains tightening around his neck, these were his final words. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He wanted the king of England, the one who had condemned him to death, to see 
the glory of God. He blessed his enemy even as his enemy killed him. And William Tyndale never got to see the results of his obedience, of the fact that he was not derailed by the resistance that he incurred. But two years later, King Henry VIII ordered that in every parish there should be a copy of the Bible that was largely based on Tyndale's work. And I don't know what King Henry VIII was thinking, but I have to believe that part of that is because when Tyndale was condemned to death, instead of reacting in anger, instead of reacting in trying to defend himself, he pleaded for the soul of the king. One author put it this way, the number one way to bless your enemies is to display God's character to them. When we're in dealing with opposition, when we have to confront sin, ladies, may we display God's character to those who oppose him. That's what William Tyndale did. That's what Moses did. And so should we. A third way that we can make sure that we aren't derailed by resistance is, letter C, to keep patiently enduring to keep patiently enduring. We see this because Moses and Aaron knew there would be opposition. It says in Exodus 7:13 that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. And yet the very next verse, Exodus 7:14, then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart and hardened and refuses to let the people go. Now you go back to Pharaoh. And Moses did. He kept patiently enduring. We see this every time in our passage, Exodus 7.20, and Pharaoh would not listen to them as Yahweh had said, but Moses and Aaron go back. Exodus 8.13, but when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said, and yet Moses and Aaron go back. They kept patiently enduring. He knew that there would be opposition. He knew that there would be resistance to God's plan but he kept on keeping on. And ladies, just like Moses knew there was going to be opposition, we should expect it too. John 16, our Savior says, in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. You're going to have trouble in this world. But take heart, I have overcome this world. John 15, 18 makes this maybe even clearer. If they hate me, Jesus is talking, if they hate me, they are going to hate you too. There is going to be resistance. But just like Moses and Aaron, we need to keep showing up. We need to keep, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we need to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And if the example of Moses and Aaron wasn't enough, we have an even better example someone who patiently endured even though he was contempt, condemned to death for no wrong that he had done. Again, in 1 Peter 2, it describes how our Savior endured. It says, for to this you have been called. Remember, this is to a suffering church, a persecuted church. For this you have been called. 
Why do you suffer? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What was that example? How did he patiently endure? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, when we're the ones who have to, be, have to deal with the confrontation, when we're the ones to suffer, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Jesus knew that God would get the honor that he deserved. Moses and Aaron knew that God would get the honor that he deserved. Ladies, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So just like Jesus, we need to patiently endure the suffering that we incur as a result of the fact that we are standing with him to those who oppose God. Now I'm sure you noticed, but there was a change in the third plague that we read about. Exodus 8, starting in verse 16, says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. I told the ladies yesterday, I, I hate gnats, partly because my name's Natalie. And so when I was a kid, my sister thought it was funny to be like, oh, you're like a little gnat. Get away from me. So gnats, like, that's gross. Like, let's just be honest. This is gross. There's gnats all over the place. All right, Exodus 8, 17, and they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And this time, the magicians tried by their secret arts to, re to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Now think back over each of these encounters. Each of these encounters, God has proven himself superior. Aaron's, staff, Aaron's serpent ate the other serpents. The Nile, while they were able to produce something that looked like blood, the magicians couldn't make the blood go back to water. The frogs, they were able to make the frogs appear, but they couldn't make the frogs go away. And now we get to this last encounter that we're going to study today, and they finally realize, even though God has proven himself superior, they finally acknowledge that they are dealing with a power that is far superior to them. They finally acknowledge, these magicians, that they were outmatched. This was the work of God in their lives that they could see that they were dealing with something or someone who was far superior to them. And ladies, when we are undergoing confrontation, when we are dealing with opposition, we need to, point three, pay attention to how God is at work. God was at work in the lives of these magicians. Now, it doesn't say it, that when it says this is the hand of God, 
We don't know that, ver that word that they're using there is not, they're not saying this is the hand of Yahweh. So it could be they're just saying this is the, the hand of something greater. This is, this is something we can't do. There is someone who is far superior to us. But even if they're not acknowledging that that person is Yahweh, God is at work in their lives. God is doing something to demonstrate to them that he is the one that they need to conform their lives to, that he is the one that they need to worship. It reminded me of, of our study in, of Cornelius over what feels like the past eight months. I know it hasn't really been that long, but it, we've been, I feel like I'm good friends with Cornelius. Do you guys feel like you're good friends with Cornelius? Like, we've studied him for so many weeks. I, like, I got to see his, what they think is his house many years ago when I went to Israel, and now I feel like, oh, I wish I'd known all about this before. I got to see his house. But our good friend Cornelius, do you remember, do you remember what Pastor Mike taught us? He said, Cornelius was someone who had a heart inclined towards God. He wanted to do the right thing. God was at work even before he had that encounter with Peter. And he said, he put it this way, he said, we need to see God's grace in any pursuit of God. And we need to praise God for his pursuit of people. Because God was at work in Cornelius' life before he ever came to repentance and faith. And the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to these magicians. I don't know what the rest of their lives were. But I know that they had an encounter with the living God and that had to change them because they finally recognized that there was someone else that they needed to pay attention to. And ladies, as we deal with confrontation, as we deal with opposition, we need to pay attention to how God is at work. We need to see how he's at work in our families, in our evangelism, in our community, in our nation. We need to recognize that we may not see all of the story, but we need to give thanks and praise for the way that he is making himself known in the lives of those who oppose him. God may not work in the way that we expect or on our timetable, but we need to praise him when we see the work that he is doing One of the reasons that most people don't like confrontation is because they don't know how that confrontation will turn out. They don't know if they have that difficult conversation, what will be the result? And yet I can tell you, as someone who's taught business and management for many years, the research is very clear that in order for work to get done, that there will be some type of confrontation, that there will be some type of conflict that is often necessary in order to complete the assignments that our organization has given us. Ladies, God has an assignment for us as well. God has something that he's calling each of us to. And sometimes in order to complete that assignment, we are going to have to have a confrontational, difficult conversation but as we do so, we make sure that we are committed to completely obeying him in every aspect of that encounter. When we make sure that we aren't derailed by resistance, that we keep on keeping on because we care more about the glory of God than we care about our own reputation or convenience. 
And may we be on the lookout for how God is at work and when we praise him for what he is doing. Let's pray. Father, we don't know the specific assignments that you will give to each of us. Yet we do know because your word says it very clearly that in this world we will have trouble. That as we follow you, there are going to be people that stand in opposition to the truth of your word that rebel against you. Father, may we look to the example of Moses and ultimately to the example of your son to be women who do not respond in frustration or anger, but who respond in obedience, who continue to persevere despite resistance, and who praise you for the work that you are doing. Be with us even now in our small group, Father. I ask that it would be a time of reflection as your spirit leads, I ask that it would be a time of conviction, and I ask that it would be a time of commitment, that we would be committed to doing all things well for the sake of your glory. In your son's holy and precious name, amen.